my apologies to those of you who've returned and I've forgotten your name, but thank you for reminding me <laughs> before we started today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know each of you a little bit better, and from what it looks like, uh, everybody's feeling the same way. Uh, it's a, I was just telling James, it's kind of wonderful to be in a church where you open the door for people to spend time talking to each other, and then you have to pull them back. <laughs> It'd be a bit more awkward if uh, you're all just still sitting here. <laughs> so anyway, just uh, welcome to each one of you, and um, as we get started today, a little bit of introduction. My name is Robert, and I'm married to Sarah in the back there. Can you wave, honey? This is fun. Um, we've been married for 15 years, thank God for that. And we've got two kids back there who, I don't think they'll want me to say their names, but that's them, next to Sarah. It's good to see you two kids. Anyway, we love them. We've been living in the Middle East in different Arabic-speaking countries for the last, oh, I don't know, since 2010, so a while. And it's um, a privilege to be with you today. Uh, I've been working in different fields for the last several years, tourism for a long time now, working in professional coaching. Um, but I'm also an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God, and uh, it's a privilege, a genuine privilege, uh, to be able to join you today in worship and uh, to have the opportunity to share from God's Word with you. And appreciate Pastor Chris's trust as well, inviting me to do that. And uh, as we look to the Word of God this morning, a few disclaimers in mind. Uh, one is that uh, I edited all the slides this morning and sent them to our AV team. So anything you can't read, all the blame for that is laid at my feet, not theirs. They are awesome. They're professional. They know what they're doing. They asked for a deadline and everything, and I still edited them anyway at the last minute. So I'll make sure to read extra clear for the ones that you might have to sit on the front row to see. And um, that's one disclaimer. And on that note, it's a privilege to be part of God's body, and um, there's lots of needs here in the church. It is a growing fellowship. Just to invite you, as we continue to worship this morning, um, let's have our hearts open to the Lord. Perhaps God might lay it on somebody's heart to participate in helping us uh, start and lead and um, care for the kids in our fellowship and kids' ministry or over greeting or over the AV team. There's people here who can train and provide resources and encouragement and support in all those ways. But first and foremost, um, it's something we do unto the Lord. So if God puts it on your heart, be sure to talk to one of these people at the lanyard this morning. They are a gift to us. So thank you guys again. One last disclaimer, uh, anything else that comes out of my mouth this morning, if it is meaningful to you, if you sense that something of God's will or desire might be in it, it's all Him. It's a funny thing, uh, in the past when I've prepared messages or I've served in any form in church, uh, there's been a sense of ease to it. For whatever reason, Sarah knows this, this week I've had such a hard time keeping my mind focused and it seems that Normal things would be easy for me have just not been easy for me. I don't know, maybe you guys have had weeks like that too, but that's how it's been for me this week. Even simple things like getting dressed, like uh, my brother Garth over here was like, hey, you know, you got stains on your clothes. You've got kids, that's okay. And I was like, well, I dressed myself and I don't even think I ate breakfast, so I don't know where these stains came from. <laughs> that to say, let our hearts be open to the Lord this morning. Perhaps if he speaks to us, I'd... I would underline that it has nothing to do with the skillfulness of my preparation or my presentation, but maybe the Lord is really among us. So let's turn to him now. Today we're going to be considering revelation and response. So revelation, wow, what a word that is. Uh, revelation, at least in English-speaking culture, uh, typically when one hears the word, it goes to the last book of the Bible, 
end of the world, apocalyptic imagery, and we certainly talked about all of that this summer as Jason skillfully took us through the breadth of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Growing up in my home, um, we had a kind of culture in the home too of an awareness of what the Bible said about Revelation and the rapture of God's holy saints to, to Jesus at a day that we don't know. And so every now and then I would, let's say, wake up from an afternoon nap or find myself alone in the house and wander into a sibling's room and see their laundry they forgot to pick up and wonder, oh no, was I left behind? <laughs> and that was one part of my culture, wondering if maybe the end had come and I had been forgotten. More than that, part of my family too, um, when my mom first became a Christian and I she wasn't raised in a Christian home, but when she first became a Christian, she was so hungry for the Bible. She devoured it. She read as often as she could. And early on, she found herself in the book of Revelation. Again, this is the last book of the Bible, which we're not going to go to in detail today. But she came across this passage in chapter 13. And if you want to talk about this after the service, you're welcome to. But I'll just say, I don't know the answers to this. But she came across a passage in chapter 13 about something called the Mark of the Beast. And you know, this is a mark that the people who follow God's Antichrist and his and the Antichrist and the people who follow the ones opposed to God, they receive a mark. In fact, they're forced to receive it. They have to, or they can't do things like buy and sell and do normal everyday kind of things. And my mom had this terrible fear that she would accidentally receive this mark of the beast. And at the same time, would you know it? In America, they issued a law saying that all children had to be issued social security numbers, which is like a civil ID number from like when they're born. And I happened to be born at that time. And so my mom had this terrible fear, oh no, my son will receive the mark of the beast. Did I know about that? No, in fact, I didn't find out about that till I was 16 years old and I needed to apply for a driver's license. And so all that to say, the one's interpretation or misinterpretation of the word or the book of Revelation can have a huge impact on one's life. It's certainly been my experience. Now, the word itself, rather than the book, the Oxford English Dictionary, I'll give that to you, definition says, Revelation is the divine or supernatural disclosure or unveiling to humans of something relating to human existence or the world. A lot of us don't have immediate experience with that, right? But we all do experience Revelation in one way or another. The scientific world for generation after generation, century after century, has put out an idea about the way the world works and the way it has arisen from the uh, natural processes. And then in the next generation, developed more technology, been able to look more closely, and had the revelation, actually we had some things wrong. And here's how we're going to think about that now. One great example is that is that we no longer think that things like worms arise from meat that sits out. We no longer look at dust on the ground and are afraid that fleas might jump out at us. Even though this idea of what Aristotle and others called spontaneous generation or non-living, or sorry, living matter arising from non-living matter, even though that idea was embraced by the brightest scholars of antiquity for hundreds and even thousands of years, finally it took a brilliant scientist named Louis Pasteur who came up with not only some great instruments but some great tests to determine actually there's something called bacteria and it does something that we can't really see too easily so that these worms come, the flies come, sicknesses come through different things, and not living things don't come from non-living things. There was a revelation in the sciences. Also, we see it in the news. 
one story comes out, and then another story comes out later and says something either the opposite or corrects something that happened. One famous incident of this happened in America in 1938. There was an author named H.G. Wells, and a, he had written up a script for a radio broadcast. When the radio broadcast came over the airwaves on October 31st, 1938, so a while ago, remember, before TVs, this was, and before YouTube and all the other stuff that we watch in streaming services, this was their streaming services. People were sitting around radios and heard a news announcement saying aliens were attacking from Mars, and people panicked. People were terrified, and the next day the newspapers read that Martians had attacked and people panicked and people were running in the streets and some people had hurt themselves or hurt others out of their panic. And all of it came out later that it was just a radio drama, read dramatically. Revelation makes a big difference, doesn't it? Now, moreover, even those things, news and science, are not so immediately relatable to us, but one of the ways that Revelation is most immediately relatable to you and me is in our relationships. For example, you do something at work or at home, and somebody misunderstands why you did it. How does that feel? It feels awful. What do you want to do? I want to explain myself. I want to make myself clear. I need to disclose something of my motives to you so you understand why I did this, hoping they'll understand and I won't be blamed or misunderstood anymore. That's the negative side, but there's also this beautiful positive side to self-revelation. When I was dating that beautiful woman back there, 17 or so years ago, and we got engaged. We spent the two years before we got married in different states in America, which isn't a, too big of a deal, but it was like 14, oh sorry, eight, 18 hours of driving apart. So it was a ways. And the only way we had to stay in touch was email and text messaging and Facebook before you could send messages and you could post on people's walls and everybody could see what you did. We sent Facebook wall posts. Anyway, it was an imperfect way to stay in touch. The only way we could stay connected was through the choice to self-reveal what happened in my day, what that meant to me, and there was so much room for misinterpretation. You know, why didn't she answer my message? Why didn't he answer when I called three times? What has he been doing all day long? Usually I just forgot my phone. I wanted to correct that misunderstanding, but nevertheless, in our relationships, we define them by how much the other person has revealed of themselves to us. I know I am close to someone because I know them. And there's no other way for me to know them except for them to choose to tell me about themselves. Same for me, same for you. We're very familiar with revelation relationally. And it's this relational revelation that we look to as we consider what theologians, people who've studied the Bible, have called revelation for a long time. And from antiquity, from the earliest days of the church, the theological fathers, or leaders of the church, talked about what they called two books of Revelation. The one book is really easy for us to see, it's just out there. They said God has given us a book, so to speak, metaphorically, that we can look at in his created world. The sun, the moon, the stars, the ocean, the fish, the trees, the animals. These things that make us say, wow, and make us wonder, how could it be without a divine, intelligent, creative author and creator? And when one takes the time to really consider, it's a fairly easy thing to worship, to give thanks. This is one form of revelation, the book of creation. As time would have it, though, too, 
we were introduced to the book of Scripture as a form of revelation. This is a way that God has revealed himself to us particularly. One might look at the world and assume the motives of the creator by things that happen. He did this, does that, there's one, there's many of this creator. All sorts of things we can assume about who this God might be by looking at the one book. But when we come to the other book, this self-revelation of God, his own explanation of his behavior, his own desire for us to understand, and his desire to be near to us, that we call the Bible, we see clearly who he is, what he wants, how worthy he is of our praise. So before, if we look to the scriptures, before the beginning of time, the book of Genesis tells us that before God's revelation in the natural world, the universe was empty. It was dark. It was meaningless. Before I experienced God's revelation in my own life, my life was empty and dark and meaningless. I'll share more on that in a few moments. The point is revelation brings light. It brings shape. It brings meaning to our existence both in the material world and in the world of the soul. So this summer, we've already mentioned it, we've been on this awesome epic journey going from Genesis to Revelation. And I already mentioned Jason has skillfully traced the theme of God's promised blessing on his people. This kind of three-part promise that God had made in Genesis, repeated again and again throughout the scriptures, of land and seed and blessing. And my kind of one-minute summary is God's promise of an eternal home, or land, an eternal community, right, the seed, population, and an eternal flourishing, right? That means people feeling good about life, good things happening, no bad stuff. <laughs> the blessing, they're all revealed, the home, the community, flourishing, they're all revealed and fulfilled in Jesus. Now, Jason isn't the first person, though he did it so well, he's not the first person to proclaim a summary of God's great gospel. In fact, God's chosen author of two-thirds of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he summarized it in just three words. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 to 27, Paul summarized it as, last line, Christ, I'm reading it for you because I know you guys can't read it in the back, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God gave me this commission to reveal the mystery that had been hidden throughout all ages. God's revealed it, revelation, right? God chose Paul to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's the nations, that's us, how great are the riches of his glory of this mystery. What mystery? What do we not know about God? What does he want us to know? How does he want us to see him? And how does he want us to interpret his book? Christ in you. This is our hope of glory. So, what now? Whether in three words or a summer of sermons, we are still left with the question, that's great, that's revelation, but how do we respond to it? So thankfully, God has left us some clues in the revelation itself. And this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 and 2 where we have a record of the first time in history this Christ in you mystery is unpacked and revealed and fully declared to God's covenant community. Acts, the book of Acts, was recorded by a contemporary or a, uh, a physician and historian who lived at the same time of the events named Luke. He wrote a gospel by the same name that comes just before that if you look a few pages back in your Bibles. 
and Luke and Acts went together. And in fact, Luke was probably uh, supported by someone who paid him to take all his time to write the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as a history of the church. And he addresses his letter to this person named Theophilus. He opens with a reference to the Gospel of the same name, Luke, and he introduces a final revelation that actually hadn't been clarified in the gospel he recorded, a final revelation from Jesus to his students or his disciples. Let's read Acts 1, 1 to 5. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, huge summary there of a lot of events. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. So he had appeared, he had taught, he had done miracles, he had suffered and died, and then he proved in many ways that he had risen from the dead, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, however, all this has already happened, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem. Don't leave. Don't go anywhere. But to wait there for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. This is referenced, if you want to take time to read it, in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 in particular, where Jesus speaks about what he's just about now to describe more fully to his disciples. He says, wait there in Jerusalem, because this is uh, in verse 5. This is what you've heard from me, for John baptized with water. This is John the Baptist. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Why wait? I mean, he's telling them, wait here for the promise of the Father, this a baptism in the Holy Spirit. This idea of a baptism of the Spirit is mentioned in the Gospels in different ways, but here we have him specifically telling them, just before he ascends to the heavens, you have to wait for the promise of God, a baptism into the Holy Spirit. Nothing like that had ever been done before. This was totally new. And I have to put myself a little bit in the apostles' mind. Here they are. They worked and served and learned from Jesus for three years, his teachings. They've observed his awesome miracles of healing and casting out demons and raising dead people. In fact, suffering and dying himself and God raising him from the dead and proving that he was alive. And now, seeming to confirm all of the Old Testament prophets that God's ruling king, his Messiah, would live forever and rule forever. Here they stand before him. And you've got to wonder, why are we waiting, Jesus? The time has come. And yet it seems that there's something more God wants to do. What could it be? Let's quickly have a look at what God might possibly be wanting to do in a fast summary of God's covenant promise with his people. So first, Genesis chapter 12. God had come on the scene. He had created the world. We know the story. Adam and Eve, our first parents, had sinned and separated from God, been cast out of the garden to live in the earth, suffering from their sins, having difficulty in tilling the land and having kids and all sorts of problems that we still have today. And then their kids and their kids and their kids have kids until the days of Noah, God floods the earth because people just wanted to do evil and wrong. And we start over again with one family that seems like they're trying to do what's right. And God is pleased with and wants them to reproduce. And yet, 
people still don't seem to know the Lord. They're not calling on Him. They're forgetting Him and they're leaving His commands, even as Adam and Eve did. And yet, in that chaos and in that darkness, God comes and visits a man at that time named Abram. In verse 12 he says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Here's the problem. Abram didn't have any kids. And his wife didn't seem like she could have kids. So God comes and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'll bless you. Key in on this word blessing. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, Jesus' disciples knew this. They were ready. God had clearly blessed Abraham and his family for generations and seasons, raised up his Messiah. He had blessed them. They knew that they were to be a blessing to the earth. But there's another part to that blessing. I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I'll curse. But God will be for those who are for you, against those who are against you. And in you, this is Abraham's family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which families? All the families. Just Jewish families? Just those who are descended from Abraham by blood? All of the families of the earth through Abraham somehow will be blessed. And so at that time, Abraham raises up his children. He has a miraculous son by God's grace to fulfill this promise uh, named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God repeats this promise to both of them. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I will bless you, and through you I will bless the world. Read the book of Genesis. He repeats the same promise several times. And then comes a time where Jacob, who is renamed Israel by God, takes his whole family to Egypt because of a time of famine. And Egypt has food and the rest of the land doesn't. And while they're there, they settle in and they're there for 400 years. And during that time, they multiply like crazy. They're a huge group of people, but they come under slavery, under a harsh ruler in Egypt, and they are suffering. And God sees them at that time, read the book of Exodus for the full story, and he raises up a man named Moses, who God uses to powerfully, miraculously lead his people out of slavery, keep all his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they find themselves as a community, homeless, but free, standing before a mountain in the desert of Sinai, where God is about to issue a new promise, repeating his promise to Abraham and expanding on it with some terms and conditions that we call the law. Exodus 19, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Isn't that beautiful poetic image? And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, obey my voice, and keep my covenant. Covenant, by the way, is the same word we use for testament. That's what Old Testament means. It's this covenant that's being talked about. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Isn't that lovely to think about God treasuring his people? And of all the peoples of the earth. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Peter echoes this in his letters later on, saying, we, the church, are the kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then God commands him to speak these words to the Israelites. God promises to make Israel his chosen people and gives them the terms of that covenant relationship. It's the law. And just after this, he calls Moses up on the mountain and God issues the law from his mouth and with his own finger, God writes these words of the law on two 
tablets of stone that God himself cut from the mountain. But the sad story is that even from the moment Moses came down from the mountain, that God's people were already rejecting and God as their king, rejecting his laws, choosing their own way, breaking these laws. God continued to keep his part of the covenant and say faithful to them, but they were not faithful to him. Not only in this generation, but the sad and sober story of the Old Testament is that Israel repeatedly heard the law of God again, re-promised again that we're going to be your people and you're going to be our God, and then they rejected him. They broke his covenant. They worshipped other gods. They committed many crimes against one another, against the vulnerable, and they became a people who didn't look like the kind of people God had made them to be. And so the eventual res result was that they were then exiled. They were cast out, not from Eden this time, but from the promised land that God had promised, if you remember, to Abraham to bring them into, and repeated again to Isaac and Jacob, and everyone had looked forward to this day, coming out of slavery in Egypt. Finally, they're in the promised land, and they are eventually cast out because they are not the kind of people that look like and worship a God like the God who reveals himself in covenant. Finally, at about this time, as Israel is taken into captivity, taken into a new slavery in Babylon, away from their land of promise, God raises up a prophet named Jeremiah. And in chapter 31, the book of Jeremiah, God looks back on all his promises and all the things he's done for his people and all that they've done wrong, and he makes a promise. Verse 31, days are surely coming. Listen close, because I know you can't read this. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, but I will make a new covenant. New Testament, that's where we get this whole idea of there being a new testament. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They had been divided at that time. They were warring against one another. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. When was that? When I took them by the hand. Again, beautiful imagery. Took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And it was a covenant they broke, though I was their husband. Does that tell you something about the kind of intimacy God wants with his people? More than master and servant. God wants nearness. God wants self-revelation. God wants sharing of time, of resources, of care. It's hard for us to think about God like that. He doesn't need it. He was just fine before he created the universe, but he desires it. And so, I was their husband, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will write my law. I will put my law within them. I will write it. Remember him writing with his own finger on the stone? I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Can you think of any better news for people who failed again and again to keep God's covenant and who failed again and again to live a life free from sin? I'll make a covenant that puts, no longer do I write it on a tablet of stone, I'll write it on their own hearts. It's going to be within them. And I'm not going to put it necessarily within a box or within a tent or a temple. I'm going to put it into a community. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And I will put away their sin. I will not even remember it anymore. 
You may recall, we won't go to the verse, but you may recall in the gospel, the moment the Lord Jesus breathed his last breath, in this symbolic veil of the separation between God's perfect holiness and an unclean world, this thick, heavy veil in the temple of worship was torn by the power of God from top to bottom. And the message is plain and clear. God has dealt with whatever it was that separated us from him. It was sin in humanity. God coming into the world. God dealing with the problems that people had made that created the need for there to be a separation in the first place. And so now, the witnesses to this, Jesus' disciples are standing before him. God's resurrected Messiah stands revealed, finally, before his people. And they ask the first of these four questions that we're going to quickly move through that are covered in uh, these first two chapters of Acts. They ask the first four questions that we can adopt to guide us in our response to God's revelation. It's not an easy thing to commune with and hear from a God you can't see. And yet God is kind to us, and he does give us a way to be able to hear him. And he gives us an example of how his first Christians did it, how they responded to this awesome revelation. So the questions are these. One, you'll see the first three are in quotes. The last one is not. Is this the time? Two, what does this mean? Three, what shall we do? And then four, what did they do? That's my interpretation of the text, so I'm just going to throw that out there from the beginning. So, first of all, is now the time. Look with me in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. Jesus has already come and said to wait in Jerusalem. His disciples are standing in expectation. And then they gathered together and they asked him, Lord, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now finally the time, Jesus, are you going to reign as our king on this earth for all eternity and bring your uh, geographical, physical kingdom to Israel now to rule from over all nations? That's an important question, especially, I don't know about you, but I'm asking similar questions. After we spent these eight weeks covering the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I want to know when it's going to happen. I want to know what the details are. I want to understand the way theologians think and take time to really understand the historical implications and all of those things. And Jesus answers in verse 7, it's not for you. It's not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice this immediacy of an encounter with God that Jesus desires for his disciples and a progression that this encounter with God will move them as ones who have experienced his presence from their immediate, comfortable, cultural surroundings to all the nations of the earth. Why is that important? Well, Jesus is not so concerned that his people know when his kingdom will come as much as how it will come. He knows they need an immediate encounter with God. He just told them to wait, not for more information, but for a gift, which we've already noted is this gift of God, this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then he leaves. He's been with them for three years. He's been their most immediate, immediate point of access to what they know and have experienced and come to believe about God. Can you imagine how devastating that was? He, they thought they had already lost him when he was crucified. Now he's alive again. 
He's been with them for 40 days, proving he's alive. The anticipation is building he's going to be with us forever. And then he leaves. It's like they lost him all over again. And I don't know about you, but there's been people in my life who are almost a bit like that to me. People who have meant a lot to me. People who I felt like I learned about who God was, about who I am, that when they left, either because they had somewhere to go or because they life and circumstances had changed or because in some cases they passed away, it was like I lost a source of light, a certain kind of revelation in my own life that was really meaningful to me. And so I can imagine that Jesus' disciples experienced something like that. And how do they interpret that? Waiting? Well, they understand this waiting to mean that they should pray. How do we know that? Well, verses 12 to 14 in that chapter say that all the disciples go back to Jerusalem, and in verse 14, all of them were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. Together with some of the other female disciples of Jesus and his mom and his brothers, and maybe even his brothers and sisters too, because the original word can mean siblings. So they, these dozen or so people with some additional disciples and the family of Jesus, they're all just getting together and praying. What could Jesus be up to? They've had this physical point of contact with him as a source of revelation, and he tells them to wait. And they understand that to mean pray. Could God perhaps be using silence to draw people nearer to himself? Could God perhaps be using silence to teach his people that he is, in fact, as Jesus said, even closer now that Jesus has gone away than he was when he was with them? Well, that's why our first response to Revelation, and again, the introduction was heavy. Some of you are like, oh no, this is point one. It's not. We're on the tail end here. The first response to Revelation was, look to God. Jesus is telling them, not when, don't look to the scriptures, don't look to history, don't even look to me physically. Look to God. I don't know about you, but especially the more disconnected we get historically from these events, it's so much simpler, it feels, to Google it, or to find a book about it, or actually all of those things are harder than just Googling it, to find some other person who seems to know. We call this media, and literally it means an intermediary. Someone else who's between us and the original fact. And yet it seems like there's an invitation from the earliest days of Jesus' physical departure from the earth to actually go straight to the source. Look to God. Are our hearts in a place where when we're confused, we move past the easy ways of other intermediaries and we simply sit before God, and our gaze is towards the living God. God, whatever you want to show me, whatever your will is, my heart is to hear your voice. Everything else is a gift from you, or something I should be warned from. But, Lord, I want to hear from you. Is that the condition of our hearts as we wait for revelation, as we wait for how to respond to this awesome revelation of God's will for us as the church in the world today? Let us have a heart that is looking to God. So, second guiding question in all of this is a question that then the crowds ask in a moment. What does this mean? When the day of Pentecost had come. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'll just touch on some of these points. When the day of Pentecost had come. Pentecost is just a word that means 50th 
It was the 50th day after Passover. Jesus, if you read the events of the Gospels, was crucified about the time of the Passover celebration, commemorating the day that God miraculously brought his people out of Egypt and that he offered the blood of lambs in place of their firstborn children and a powerful symbol of what he did for the nation of Israel and the world on the cross through Jesus. Jesus was crucified about that time. He rose about three days later. And then, remember, he appeared for about 40 days. So 43-ish or so days later, he's telling them, wait here. And on the 50th day, this is the Jewish festival of Pentecost after Passover. So they've been waiting and praying for how long? A week, right? It's not forever, but it's persistence. On the 50th day, when, the, when it had come, they were all together in one place, all of these disciples, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each one of them. That's a tongue of fire. It's a symbol. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them the ability. Now, the important focus for today, it's not the tongues part, although that is an important conversation that's worth having. We can talk about it after service. I can tell you where to Google it as well. But the focus today is on this element of they're filled with the Holy Spirit and what that really means in the whole event of staying and waiting and how it changes the dynamic of what it means to be the people of God. It certainly seems to have an international impact. How do we know? Now, verse 5, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. At the sound of all these people speaking of the languages, they gathered together and were bewildered. They were amazed because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not these who are speaking Galileans? We hear each in our own language. And they list off all these nations where people are from. Some of them I recognize, most I don't, but there's some recognizable ones in there like Egypt, Libya and Arabs. Isn't it beautiful that there was Arabic being spoken and proclaimed in verse 11? In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. What's happening there? It would be like, um, like I don't speak Malayalam, and I don't look like I speak Malayalam. Most of us don't look like we speak Malayalam. Some do. But let's say someone who speaks Malayalam from India comes inside and they see all of us worshiping and praising God and declaring his awesome majesty in perfect Malayalam. And um, they're like, dude, that guy looks American. I, he does not look Malayali at all. And I'm thinking to myself, there'd be some amazement there. Something awesome is happening here. What is happening? And so in verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered. And they said, ah, they're filled with new wine, equals they're drunk. Now, note who the crowd asks, what does this mean? It says they ask one another. They don't ask the disciples who are experiencing this, and they don't consult the scriptures, God's revelation. They're asking other confused people, what does this mean? And then other confused people, too, are just kind of coming to their own conclusions before consulting the people it's happening to. Oh, they're just drunk, probably. That's what's happening. So notice that when there is no revelation, we have confusion and misinterpretation. Now, even though they didn't consult the disciple and they didn't consult the scriptures, one of Jesus' disciples rises up and explains from the scriptures. In verse 14, Peter prompts the crowd. And he says, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen. Listen to what I say. 
But even though they're not listening, he's inviting them to listen now to what the scriptures will say. Most of that chapter goes on to Peter explaining clearly and concisely from the scriptures, from the prophet Joel, who demonstrates that God sent his promised spirit to come upon all people, men and women, young and old, um, free and slave, and God's spirit would come upon them and they would have spirit-anointed speech, they would have direct access to God and speak for God, signs and wonders and dreams and visions. This is a sign of God enacting his new covenant of the spirit, that they will all know the Lord and say to one another, I know the Lord. So Peter explains from Joel, this is a sign of the new covenant, and then using Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to show that this Jesus is more than a historical figure. He's a descendant of King David, and he has risen from the grave as David, a prophet, predicted would happen. He lives now. He's never going to die. And he is Lord. Because David said to the same Messiah that he prophesied, and God showed him who he was, that my Lord said to him, no, the Lord said to my Lord, David was a king, he was a Lord. But the Lord said to my Lord. And so there was a sense that even this ruler, this descendant of David would be Lord of all, king of the world, king of the universe, and not a far step from God himself. That was the idea. And Peter expertly makes it clear. God's new covenant has come. God's promised Messiah has come. He's more than just a man. He is the Lord, and you crucified him. You hung him on a tree. This Jesus of Nazareth, and I invite you when you have the opportunity to go look at how Peter describes this in the successive verses in chapter 2. He makes it clear he was handed over by the will of God to the Jews who had the will to kill him by the hands of those who are outside the law. So who is responsible for the death of Jesus? God certainly planned it, but the Jews desired it, and it was done with the hands of those outside the law. That's us. We're outside the law. It wasn't just an isolated historical cultural incident. The world itself was gathered there to crucify God's chosen Messiah and Savior. And each of us in our own way bear the responsibility for the sins that the later disciples would later explain Jesus himself paid and atoned for on the cross. But each of us committed wrongs against this God that he died for and chose become sin for us in exchange so we can become the perfect righteousness of God. Everything that they had waited for, these devout Jews, these seemingly good people, everything that they had hoped for and waited for when it finally came, when he finally came, they not only rejected him, but they killed him. And you can imagine how they felt. And so in chapter 2, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why is it so important? Peter hadn't, they hadn't consulted the scriptures or the disciples, but when some did respond to the invitation to listen, and when they heard, it moved them. How deeply are we moved by the word of God? Our second response then is to listen to God, to listen in the scriptures. As we turn our gaze towards him, as we look to him, whether you do this in private or in church, in your hearts, Posture is a place of reception and listening and attention. And you're setting your ears and the ears of your heart to listen. 
are we listening to God's word in the scriptures? Are we trusting that God will speak through his revelation? God did speak to this crowd at that time. He speaks to us today. And along with this posture of looking to God and listening, we're then guided with the question that this crowd asks. In verse 37, the second half, when it says, they said to Peter and the other apostles, now finally consulting them, you clearly know what's going on. Brothers, what should we do? What do we do? What do we do with this mess that we've made? And so we have our answer, and we're going to quickly get our third and fourth and final response about how we respond to Revelation when Peter answers the crowd. And he says to them, first of all, in verse 38, repent. Repent. Be baptized and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. There's a cause and effect relationship here. If they want their sins to be forgiven, they have to repent first and they have to become publicly identified with Jesus. Certainly it begins in the soul to say, I'm with you, Jesus. I know you died for my sins. You went to a cross for me and for all of humanity that I am a part of. And I recognize that there's a part of me that simply must die with you there. And if I want a new life, I have to rise with you. This is the symbol of baptism that we recently celebrated together when we had several in this group baptized as a symbol of this event. But repentance and baptism are so tied together because in, just as in repentance, we turn and regret from our sins, right? We turn from evil to good, from Satan to God, and from death to life. Repentance is all about turning away. My attention is on my sin, my selfishness, my insecurity, me, 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 and all that I want and get and am frustrated by. And I turn instead toward God, and I receive from Him direction, and I begin to walk in obedience to Him. It's a turning away. We have to, if we want God to forgive our sins, we have to turn to Him for the forgiveness. And on His terms, the way He gives it, it begins with saying, I was wrong, and you are right, and I'm going to listen. And so our third response is to repent, and I would say, not quite parenthetically, but and be baptized. This baptism, it's about this identification with Jesus. I am not going to live anymore the way I was because I have quite literally died with Christ. And now I can no longer actually live apart from his life living in me. I am utterly dependent on him. I belong to him. That is why we are baptized. So we are publicly identified with him in community and we become a new community unto him. And what happens? God forgives us of our sins. Can you just settle on that for a moment? I don't know about you, but I have been so aware of my sin for most of my life. I have been so aware of the ways I fall short of my own expectations, much less others, much less God's. All that I regret, all that you regret, all that I ought to regret, but I'm too hard-hearted to, all that separates me from a God who just keeps reaching in and saying, let me be as a husband to you, as a spouse to you, as someone who cares for you, as someone who wants intimacy with you. And all the ways I just push him away and say, I'd rather uh, Google it. <laughs> God comes in and he takes it away. He receives in himself. He chooses, I'm going to be punished for you so you don't have to. I want you, but you can't come to me the way you are. You're too selfish. You're too self-absorbed. You're too antagonistic. You fight too much with yourself and others. But I want you. And God makes a way. He will forgive us of our sins. 
he does it so we can trust that it actually works. It doesn't work when you and I try to make it happen, but he himself takes care of it. So now we're ready for our fourth and final response. Verses 38 to 40, you will receive, after forgiveness of sins, it's not now, go get, it's you will receive. That's a receiving posture. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. That's us, by the way. We're recipients of this promise. Everyone, how do we know? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. The last line of the prophet Joel that Peter quoted was, and on that day, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. Everyone God calls to him. God is calling to you today. If you're being drawn to him today, if you're wanting to leave that selfish and ignorant and distant life behind you, away from him, he's likely working in your heart to call to himself today. And he's waiting for you to respond, to look to him, to listen, to repent, and to receive his spirit. To receive and to live a new life by God's Spirit. This is a choice, however. Just like I could come and maybe, um, I saw that Mercy Before Service, you probably won't like that I said this, because he gives in secret. But I saw her give something over here. And um, there was a choice. It was, looked like a gift. There was a choice that they could have received it or not. And certainly we all make choices when we get gifts, right? We either like use them when we go home or find someone else to give them to. <laughs> the point is, receiving a gift is always a choice but it's offered. Receive God's Spirit to live a new life. And what is that new life? What was that summary of what God was promising again in Jeremiah chapter 31? What is this New Testament that we as a church, as a community, are entirely gathered around? What is this Christ in you element that ought to define what we look like? It's this. God's presence among his people. God's desire to do God's will in us. God's power to do God's will in us. We are not only saved by his absolute grace and mercy, we are changed, we are matured, we are improved on by his work, by his power. Saved by grace, and the classic theological word is sanctified, made holy by his grace. But just as we had to receive it for forgiveness of sins, we had to receive it to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness. We have to have his help. He's the one who raises us up to more than what we could be. I'm so glad we sang that song. We never looked at it as a worship song until today. It's him who raises us up and makes us able to actually do his will. That's such good news. God's offering it, but are we ready to actually receive his help? Are we ready to give up our right to make our own decisions? And let God choose for us. This is the gospel. This is Paul's gospel. This is Christ in you. This is our hope of glory. God with us now. God with us forever. God will be our God. We will be his people. God will be near to us. God will share from himself with us and self-disclose for all eternity. And we to him. When you pray, when you read the scriptures, you're preparing your heart for eternity. It's not just a spiritual exercise. It's not just something you're supposed to do as a Christian. You're preparing for an eternal, intimate relationship with this God. And if you're not comfortable with that, 
there's another place for you to go. And God won't make you be with him for all eternity. But will you respond to that invitation today? I'm so thankful that the invitation takes more than one form. We can certainly look at how that community responded. But just looking back on the way they did and the way we're taught to respond to Revelation today, we first of all look to God. In that community, they looked to God, they listened, they repented, and they received God's Spirit. What about us? What are we going to do today? How are we going to respond? Well, if I can, let's look at the involuntary response. This was the voluntary response. This was the choice. But what actually happened to that community? As we come to a close, let's consider what a community that God dwells in like this in his new covenant looks like. Well, quickly, Acts 2.41 says, those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, 3,000 people were added. There was 120 people, if you read the whole text, who were gathered there together, and they turned into 3,000. That's like 2,500 or so percent growth in 24 hours. That's enormous. That doesn't happen. It's not something that you market people into. It's the work of God. And they received the Spirit. They had immediate access to God. They were under the leadership of God's resurrected and reigning Messiah. So what did they do with that? And what do we do with that today? How does it make us look? I'm going to close by inviting you to use your imagination. We, rather than look on this as a historical event, which it is, and it bears its own kind of interpretation to understand, but I would just invite you today to use your imagination and listen to the involuntary response, the symptoms of God's indwelling presence and reconciliation with him that came upon this community. Verses 43 to 47, awe, awe, wonder, came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were gathered together and they had all things in common. They, they shared all their stuff. No one said, that's mine and you can't have it. No one said, oh, you need that? Sorry, I need it more. In fact, they would sell their possessions and goods and they would distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, and here's this beautiful summary, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, Worshiping God, and not just at church, that's kind of what the equivalent is there, but also they broke bread at home. So they knew each other's public life and their private life. Do we know each other's personal lives? To my shame, I've not invited many of you into my own home. But this kind of community looks like a community of hospitality, of welcome in, of I've got nothing to hide because God deals with that, and I trust you to maybe call me on it and help me improve or to learn from you. Or I trust you to just be my friend. You're not just my Friday morning friend. You're my friend all the time. And you mean something to me because you belong to God. You're bought with his blood and you are filled with his spirit too. They ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of the people. Doesn't that sound nice? And day by day, the Lord, the Lord, added to their number those who were being saved. Maddie, I'd like to invite you to lead us in a song of response. And if you can just play softly for a moment as I give this conclusion. There was a time this universe had no light. It had no shape. It had no meaning. And then God spoke and he created all. There was a time that humanity had lost all understanding, all their collective hope, lost their way. 
And then God revealed himself to a man named Abraham and his family. In fact, extending that further, there was a time in my life, which I've already mentioned, I was ignorant, sometimes by choice, of God's revelation and the creation and in the scriptures. And I was completely self-absorbed. Not just selfish and cruel and mean, but just anxious and afraid of what people thought of me all the time. I was self-absorbed. I tried to change myself. I didn't want to be that way. But I was still trying to be God, doing the change with my own power, my own way, and to live life on my terms. It was horrible. It was not enjoyable. Some of you today might know what that feels like, to face the continued frustration of trying and failing, trying and failing to be better. The good news is, the gospel is, you have never and will never be able to be the one who makes yourself better. God is your Savior. God gives you God's will to do His will and God's power to do His will. It is a gift, and He's inviting us all today as a church, even though it's thousands of years later, as His community to receive this gift. There may not be signs and wonders and miracles as we reflect now. There may not be a lot of words of prophecy or other tongues and languages, though there may be a time for that. But now in our heart, our response is to consider what God might do in us. When I looked to God, when I listened to Him finally and stopped listening to myself, when I repented of my sins and was baptized in the life of Jesus, I began to live a new life. That's my story. I understand that. But it's an invitation for all of us, too. This good news does change us. Maybe not quickly, though. But I did go from selfishness to the beginnings of service. I went from games and escape in very many ways to responsible work. I went from hiding in fear to resting in the love of God. I went from essentially death to life. Christ in me, my hope. I have really not tried today to teach beyond what I've witnessed myself. I'm kind of afraid of teaching like that. This has been my experience, but I see it's not just been my experience. This is the experience of God's community. And he's not done with me yet. I'm still in progress. There's a reason this early church called this the way. Because we're on a journey with Christ. And the good news is we're not alone in that journey. I've not reached the destination. Even though I'm dressed up for church, I've got, I don't even know how I got an oil stain on my leg or this stain on my elbow turn on my notes last minute. I've got problems with organization. I've got problems with my weight. Last year, I put on a bunch of weight. <laughs> There's all sorts of stuff that troubles me. And if I would imagine as a church, we feel the same way. I know that God will continue to change me just as he already has. But I have to look to him. We have to look to him. We have to listen. And we have to repent of any known wrongs and turn to his way of doing things. Being baptized and identified with him completely. And then we will receive, if we're willing to, his Holy Spirit to change us. It happens in community. It doesn't happen alone. We can't Christian alone. We have to do this together. So today, as Maddie begins to play, do you need to stop looking for every other source and voice and just look to God? Do you need to open your heart to God's revealed word and listen? Do you need to acknowledge and repent of your sins? And is it time to be baptized the next time you're invited to as a public testimony of your faith in Christ? Do you need to receive and live this new life in Christ? 
as we consider these things, join me now in responding to God's revelation as Mandy leads us in song.